The name of tonight's talk is Metta, the Icon of Goodness. Last week when I gave a talk, it had been inspired by Deepama. And this week's talk has also been inspired by someone. They're from a different realm, <laughs> quite a different person, uh, and it's actually Paul McCartney. I recently went to a concert by him and was very deeply moved by the experience. When he first appeared on the stage, it was a moment of complete confusion. Was I about eight years old when I first heard the Beatles? Was I 16 when I used to scream? Or was I in the present moment? And where were the other Beatles? Who was Paul without the other Beatles? It was quite a, a strong feeling. And as the concert went on, he held both the past and the present in a very beautiful way. He was able to honor the past and still be himself in that moment. And one of the things that became clear to me through the course of the evening was that the Beatles, in some way, were for many people an icon of goodness. Sitting in the audience there, I was pretty much average age. There was definitely people who were older, and there was a few people who were younger. Uh, it probably wasn't your average rock concert um, uh, people at this concert. And yet, at the end of every song, the appreciation, the love, was so evident. And it was like he represented something. You know, I couldn't just see it as Paul McCartney, this being on stage. There was many conditions coming together in that moment. I realized that, you know, the Beatles had really been something. And we see it like in, they represented goodness. And looking at some of the names of their uh, songs, such as All You Need Is Love or Give Peace a Chance. And then at one point he played Let It Be. And when he played that, there's a couple of lines in the song in particular that really are strong. Um, the lines being, and in my darkest hour, there is still a light that shines on me. I felt the sense of faith in my heart so strong, my heart just ached. It was, you know, a really complete experience in some way, totally satisfying. And that's what happens as we turn to goodness. And this is what the practice of metta is, turning our hearts to goodness, essential goodness. This is what all of the Brahma-vihara practices are. All of the Brahma-vihara practices, the other three being compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. Any one of these practices is an aiming of the heart to remember our true homes, our natural home, places that we forget, that our habits of delusion cover over. And so, by the aiming of our heart, it is a way to help us remember, to help us reconnect, to find our way home. This means that we don't all have to go to a Paul McCartney concert <laughs> to turn towards this goodness. In my own practice, I have found metta to be invaluable. Really very helpful. And it wasn't always so. When I first started doing Vipassana practice, or in the early years of practicing with the Burmese teachers, I was there for liberation. I was there 
to realize truth. And metta practice, that, that was for the wusses. <laughs> I was really from the metta Shmetta club. <laughs> you know, I was ready for that hard truth. Give it to me. <laughs> and then it wasn't until I was really stuck or in a hard place in my own practice. And at that time I was practicing with Sayadaw Ujjanaka. I got so tight, there was no spaciousness, zero spaciousness, not a millimeter of spaciousness. And I went in and reported my experience to him. And so he told me that I should do metta. And then he followed that up by saying, and you must be successful. (laughs) I knew I was close to an edge. (laughs) And so I started doing the metta practice. And at first, it was as awful as the insight practice had been. You know, each phrase coming out like this high-pitched whine. May I be helping? May I be helping? (laughs) But I continued. I knew from the, the tone of his voice that I had to really apply effort. It wasn't a time to be... um, miserly with effort. And so as I continued on, the mind got much more peaceful, calm. Just because it's a concentration practice, it can have that effect. I also found that judgment was disappearing, and I had been so caught in judgment just before I did this practice. And yet as I practiced, I could see as I offered to metta to all of the people who were passing by. One of the ways I was doing it was walking outside in front of the toilets in Burma. And everybody uses the toilets. So you, you don't get picky. You just, you know, practice offering metta to whoever comes. And then it just helped to erode that sense of difference, that sense of separation. And it just melted away the mind of judgment. It helped me to become much more accepting of the way my experience was unfolding. In the cultivation of wisdom, it's really important that we at the same time cultivate compassion. And here I'm using compassion in the broad sense of the word, which also includes metta or loving-kindness. If we don't do this, what we find is that uh, the mind becomes dry, brittle, that we may have great levels of understanding, but we fail to embody the radiant heart. We live in an abstract world where we don't understand relationship. We don't understand experientially that we're living deeply entwined with all beings. And metta practice really helps us to get in touch with this interconnectedness. It helps us to break down the barriers of separation that create this sense of a solid, separate I. So in this way, it really works to freeing the mind. As Joseph said last night, the Buddha, all of the Buddha's teachings were about liberation of the mind. And the Brahma-vihara practices are included in these teachings. We can find uh, evidence or different ways that we might... Uh, find metta when we look at the Noble Eightfold Path. We find it in all three of the trainings of mind, in the training of ethical conduct. It's really the basis of ethical conduct, being right speech, right action, right livelihood. It's an expression of metta when we really live with that caring heart where we care about the world we live in, and we express it through what we do and what we say. 
we also find metta in the samadhi training, the training of the mind. We find it as a concentration practice, concentration helping to calm the mind, to bring about tranquility, peace. It helps to seclude the mind from the hindrances. We also find it related to mindfulness. Mindfulness in that it is a, a part of mindfulness in the, what allows us to accept, to be gentle, to have a friendly relationship to our experience. We also find that we need mindfulness in order to do metta practice. Each time that we offer a phrase, we can bring our full presence to that phrase, to be totally present for it. We can also find it in the training of wisdom. We find it in right thought or right intention. The Buddha talked about there being three kinds of right thought. Thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of goodwill, and thoughts of harmlessness. Metta relates to all of these. In a moment when metta is present, we have renounced aversion and ill will in the mind. Metta is goodwill itself. It is that generosity of heart. And metta leads to harmlessness. So it's connected with right thought, right intention. The importance of metta is expressed in a quote by Ajahn Buddhadasa, who is a Thai forest monk, very well renowned. He was once asked how Westerners who begin spiritual life with deep inner wounds, pain, and self-hatred can best approach practice. And he replied with two suggestions. First, their whole spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principles of metta. Then they should be taken out into nature, into beautiful forests or mountains, and they must stay there long enough to realize that they too are a part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony with all life and their proper place amidst all things. So the first aspect he was speaking about, our whole practice needing to be enveloped by the principles of metta or loving-kindness. To be enveloped by the qualities of metta, the qualities of friendship. I think friendship is a word that has really helped me to touch into metta. Because so often when we talk about metta, metta, you know, love without conditions, vast, boundless, and it starts to feel like this really high ideal, and how will we in our lives ever touch it, ever touch the capacity of it? And yet, if we can see it as the friendly heart, Know whether it's being friendly as our experiences arise, being friendly to ourselves, learning to be our own best friend, or learning to be a friend to others through that benevolence of heart, which is another quality of metta, where we can really put aside our own wants and needs and look at someone and simply wish well for them. Metta also has the quality of gentleness. It's often likened to a gentle rain that falls on everything. You know, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't pick or choose. I'll fall on you, but not you. No, it just simply falls, and it falls gently. Metta also is inclusive. It's not picking and choosing. 
And this helps us in our practice to learn to include all experiences, not just when it feels good. We learn to open to it all. We learn to bring a caring attention to our experience, whatever is arising. Another description of metta, as it's stated in the Abhidhamma, is very simple too. It's simply non-aversion. The absence of greed, hatred, or the absence of hatred and aversion and ill will in the mind. When we think about when there's no aversion present, it's calming, it's peaceful, there's an ease that is present. And we're cultivating all of these qualities of heart and mind as we do metta practice. And I say cultivate with caution because this can set up the idea that we are trying to manufacture a feeling. We are trying to make something be that isn't there. So to remember that metta is not manufacturing the feeling, it's aiming of the heart-mind. And out of that aiming, we see, we experience for ourselves the qualities of metta. We will also experience metta in very simple, down-to-earth ways. In our insight practice or metta practice, whatever practice we might be doing, when we stay diligent and just keep returning to our experience or the phrases over and over again, this can be a form of metta. We're accepting, there's kindness, we're opening to this experience. It can, metta is present when we're facing our difficulties, when we have that courageousness of heart to sit with our knee pain, and we just soften. Or we sit with emotional pain, and we just allow it to be felt, to be touched, to be experienced. We also experience metta in moments when we're totally present for someone. Sharon Salzberg in her book on loving kindness says, to love someone is to be totally present for them. This is a form of metta or loving kindness. It doesn't come with a big sign saying, I'm here for you. It's just the simplicity of being with someone and listening. I experienced uh, something of this when I met the Dalai Lama. When I met the Dalai Lama, I was in uh, McLeod Ganj in India. I was at his place of residence. He was giving a group audience. A group audience means that there are, at that day at least, there was about a thousand people that filed past the Dalai Lama, and shook his hand. I'd always heard about the Dalai Lama that when you meet him, he greets you as if you are a long-lost friend. And somehow standing towards the end of this line, I thought, well, he'll be a bit burnt out by the time he gets to me. And yet, when I shook his hand, it was totally true. It was, you know, just a sense as if there was nobody else in the world and he was totally present and totally delighted in being there. It was such a, a, a hit of metta. The other night when Michelle gave the instructions for metta practice, she described uh, metta as the welling up of love that a mother cow has 
when she first sees her newborn calf. It's just a spontaneous movement of the heart. And in that moment, you know, the mother cow isn't loving her calf because of who they are, what they've done, what they will become. It's loving them just the way they are in that moment. I've noticed in my own life that children and animals have a way of calling forth this spontaneous feeling of metta. You know, they just have a way of touching us deeply. Some of you maybe have experienced it around here. There's a form of metta practice where one has a handful of seeds and offers it to the birds. As the bird lights on your hand, it's almost impossible not to feel metta, not to just have your heart in that moment open to the well-being of this tiny creature. So we have moments where metta spontaneously arises. But unfortunately, they don't happen all the time. They tend to come and go. And thus, we have metta practice. Thus, we have a practice that can help us to touch into this quality. Sometimes when we're doing metta practice, we might not have the sense of this welling up that the mother cow feels in seeing her newborn calf. But at these times, we can rest in the intention of metta. Rest in how each time we form a phrase of loving kindness, and whether we offer it to ourselves or we offer it to another, it is a moment when aversion is not present in the mind. It's a wholesome moment. And so in these moments, we begin planting seeds, planting seeds of loving kindness. We've already heard how important our motivations and intentions are, how they condition what our lives will be like, what the fruits of we will realize in our life come from our motivations and intentions. So in metta practice, we're planting these seeds of loving kindness. There's um, an old Cherokee story that illustrates how, very simply about how uh, we plant these seeds and water. One evening there was an old Cherokee who told his grandson about a battle that was going on inside him. He said, My son, it is between two wolves. One is evil. There is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, and resentment, inferiority, lies, and false pride, superiority, and ego. The other is good. There is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The grandson thought about it for a moment, and then he asked his grandfather, which wolf wins? And the old Cherokee simply replied, the one I feed. So we plant seeds of loving kindness. These seeds of loving kindness are subject to the laws of karma. Actually, the last line that Paul McCartney sang in the concert was a reflection of this. He said, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Actually, he sung it, but I won't do that for you. (laughs) So planting the seeds of loving kindness. 
And planting seeds is actually a framework that I used in my own metta practice. And I know this was uh, suggested by, I can't remember if it was Joseph or Sharon, but having the sense of every time we have this formation of the phrase of loving kindness, it's planting a seed. And this is where the power is. This is the power of the practice in these tiny seeds. And these seeds will grow in their own time. We never know when we will reap the fruits of it. You know, there's certainly been times where I may have been doing metta practice intensively and, you know, no strong feelings, nothing, everything seems as it was. And then um, something might happen that would normally totally irritate and anger me. And there's no response. Or there's a response of the opening of the heart. There's some kind of softening that has occurred. And these are just moments where we reap the fruits of this practice. The proximate cause or condition that most easily gives rise to metta is the scene of goodness. And I know Michelle spoke about this the other night in the metta practice. She also spoke about how for some of us this is not so easy, that even the thought of looking for goodness can bring up aversion. Um, it, we can have strong habits of looking for what's wrong, looking to what needs to be fixed. And so it can be a kind of a reprogramming of the mind to look for goodness. One value of paying attention to this reprogramming of the mind is that it can actually be the, the cause for the arising of metta. So it makes sense if we can find that capacity to, you know, even as we begin a metta sitting, it's often the reflection that's used. If we're working with ourselves, can we reflect on some aspect of ourselves that we appreciate? Yes, there's 10,000 things that we don't appreciate, but can we just find one thing that we do appreciate? If we're working with others, especially you know, if we're working with someone who's difficult. Can we, instead of just focusing on everything we don't like, can we bring to mind something we can appreciate? There's other ways to begin the metta practice. We can reflect on how we all have this deep wish to be happy. It's something that's shared by all beings. Yes, it gets confused. We do unskillful things because we're seeking happiness in misguided ways, but the basic wish is the same. So we drop into this level of having this shared basic wish. Another way that we can begin metta practice is to simply reflect on the qualities of mind. And each time, as we reflect on these qualities, to get a sense of embodying this aspect of metta, embodying gentleness, friendliness, goodwill, embodying it just for a moment. It's like calling it into being. It's turning our minds towards Then as we do the practice, to remember that it doesn't always feel good. A lot of times we experience immense suffering as we do metta practice. It can be quite painful at times because we hit our boundaries of separation. We hit places of holding in our hearts. We might come in contact 
with feelings of bitterness, numbness, a hardening of the heart. But this doesn't mean the practice isn't working. It is working. It's helping us to touch places that we normally run away from. We won't allow ourselves to feel. And we just learn to soften, to touch feelings of unworthiness, or touch the feeling of not being lovable. I'd like to share something that was sent to me uh, by a friend through email. I don't think it was written by him. I'm not sure who wrote, who wrote it. But it, to me, expresses what happens as we do metta practice. Uh, it could have been written by someone who doesn't even know about metta practice, and yet it rings true to my own experience. It's called Installing Love. And it's a conversation between a customer service rep and a customer. Customer service rep, can you install love? Customer, I can do that. I'm not very technical, but I think I'm ready to install now. What do I do first? Rep, the first step is to open your heart. Have you located your heart, ma'am? Customer, yes, I have, but there are several programs running right now. Is it okay to install while they are running? Rep, what programs are running, ma'am? Customer, let me see. I have pasthurt.exe, lowesteem.exe, and grudge. I'll, I'll forget the exes and .coms and stuff. Grudge and resentment running right now. Rep, no problem. Love will automatically erase past hurt from your current operating system. It may remain in your permanent memory, but it will no longer disrupt other programs. Love will eventually overwrite low esteem with a module of its own called high esteem. However, you have to completely turn off grudge and resentment. Those programs prevent love from being properly installed. Can you turn those off, ma'am? Customer, I don't know how to turn them off. Can you tell me how? Rep. My pleasure. Go to your start menu and invoke forgiveness. Do this as many times as necessary until grudge and resentment have been completely erased. (coughs) Customer. Okay, I'm done. Love has started installing itself automatically. Is that normal? Rep. Yes, it is. You should receive a message that says it will reinstall for the life of your heart. Do you see that message? Customer. Yes, I do. Is it completely installed? Rep. Yes, but remember that you have only the base program. You need to begin connecting to other hearts in order to get the upgrades. Customer, oops, I have an error message already. What should I do? Rep, what does the message say? Customer, it says, error 412, program not run on internal components. What does that mean? Rep, don't worry, ma'am, that's a common problem. It means that the love program is set up to run on external hearts, but has not yet been run on your heart. It is one of those complicated programming things. But in non-technical terms, it means you have to love your own machine before it can love others. Customer, so what should I do? Rep, can you find the directory called self-acceptance? Customer, yes, I have it. Rep, excellent, you're getting good at this. Customer, thank you. Rep, you're welcome. Click on the following files and then copy them to my heart directory. Forgive self, self-esteem, realize worth, and goodness. The system will overwrite any conflicting files and begin patching any faulty programming. Also, you need to delete self-criticize from all directories and then empty your recycle bin afterwards to make sure it is completely gone and never comes back. Customer, got it. Hey, my heart is opening... My heart is filling up with really neat files. Smile is playing on my monitor right now, and it shows warmth, peace, and contentment. They're copying themselves all over my heart. Rep, then love is installed and running. You should be able to handle it from here. One more thing before I go. Customer, yes. Rep, love is freeware. Be sure to give it and its various modules to everybody you meet. They will in turn share it back with other, share it with other people, 
that will return some really neat modules back to you. So metta practice. It takes us into some difficult places. The places of self-criticism, unworthiness, low esteem, resentment, grudges. Habits of mind. Habits of mind that as we see them, as we hit up upon them, they lose their power. It probably happened to some of us at least that when we began the metta practice and began working with ourselves, we ran into some of these states. Sometimes we are the difficult person. Sometimes working with ourselves, it may be difficult and yet there's some softening. We can feel it. For For some of us, it may be that our metta practice is a lot focused towards ourselves because we have such strong habits of being hard on ourselves. Sometimes it's so difficult, though, that we will need to begin with another being, someone whom it's more easy. Picking someone whom readily we can just have that welling up of wishing well for them. Not welling up of some great emotional state, but just that simplicity of that friendly wish. It is important that we do include ourselves in some way in the practice. Although, as I said, it may not be in the beginning. The Buddha once said, I have visited all quarters with my mind, nor found I anyone dearer than myself. Self is likewise to every other dear. Who loves themselves will never harm another. We need to touch into this. No one dearer than ourselves. And out of this, we come to understand that each and every other person is also dear. (laughs) In doing metta practice, it's also helpful to be familiar with what's called the near and the far enemies of metta. The near enemy of metta is attachment or desire. And it has a way of masking itself as metta. We might actually believe when we're experiencing it that it is metta. The far enemy is the opposite of metta, which is anger or aversion. So the near enemy of metta. We experience this when there's conditions to our love. I'll love you if you love me. I'll love you if you never leave me. I'll love you if you do exactly what I want you to do. Often we don't, aren't even aware of these or conditions of our love until somebody does something that we don't like. And then we want to retract our love. We want to withdraw it. There's a sense of wanting something back or of this love being self-referencing, that it's something that we will benefit from, whether it's through feeling good or that, that someone will be there to be our friend, to protect us. Um, When I was at this concert, I kept noticing 
uh, periodically in the lungs, or, or so-called love songs, there was phrases that are just born of total attachment. Um, I can't remember the exact ones from that concert, but there is one uh, line that goes to one of John's songs, which is, I want you. I want you so bad, babe. I want you so bad, it's driving me mad. You know, and, and we start to think of this as being love. We can actually beautify it in the way of we think if we're really suffering in someone's absence, it totally proves our love for them. When really we're just attached, longing, um, wanting something. Where metta has the unconditional aspect, not wanting anything in return. For this reason, uh, the affectionate love that we so often call love, that has a, a sense of fire and passion where metta can feel really cooled out. Uh, it doesn't have that burning fire of passion within it. And often when people start doing metta practice, they are looking for more of a sentimental love. And so looking for those uh, passionate, uh, warm, glossy feelings in practice. And fail to see the quiet voice of metta, which is just that wholesome wish for another's well-being. Through our metta practice, we'll come to experience the difference between the near enemy and metta itself. I had a really great lesson in this. It was um, after having done metta you know, for a number of years and having been told by my Burmese teachers not to do metta practice for someone of the sex to which I was attracted, or someone to whom we have erotic energy towards. And I had listened to this, and my teacher would often tell a story about this couple who were practicing, and they were in rooms that were side by side. And in doing metta practice and practicing sending metta to their partner, one person became so gripped in craving that they actually started to claw the wall to try and break through the wall. <laughs> and so I would hear this story, and I kind of take it with a grain of salt, you know? It's like, <laughs> but I was trying to be a good yogi, so I listened to this. And then one time I was doing intensive metta, and I was actually sitting in this hall and doing metta for a long, doing, it was a three-month retreat, and I was doing several weeks of metta practice, as some of you are. And one sitting, you know, I just thought, okay, I love my husband, I'm going to send metta. And I just decided to do it. And I spent that whole sitting sending metta to him. And at the end of the sitting, I thought, hmm, that feels all right. You know, I'm not going to claw down any walls. <laughs> I'm okay. And then I walked out into the foyer. And as some of you know, my husband works here. He, uh, and he was, happened to be standing out in the hallway. And when I saw him, it was a moment. <laughs> there was this, you know, flush that went through my body. <laughs> And it wasn't a moment of really wishing for his well-being from the depths of my heart. <laughs> Fortunately, a few days later, I woke up one morning and was just spontaneously sending metta to him. And it had that sense of just wishing for his well-being. And so it became really clear to me the difference between the two. And the near enemy is tricky. It will kind of seep in in different ways. It's something that we do need to pay attention to. Our relationships are actually a practice of metta. 
And so in our relationships, we begin to see these moments where there's attachment and moments where there's this purity of heart. This continually gets refined through doing the metta practice. We see more clearly when there's levels of attachment. Deepama was once asked, how can you love and not attach at the same time? She responded, a simple example is that of water. Non-attachments, attachment means you flow on top of the water. You don't plunge into it. You stay afloat without going under. She was also asked how her basic understanding of life changed. She said, my outlook has greatly changed. Before I was too attached to everything. I was possessive. I wanted things. But now it feels like I am floating, detached. I am here, but I don't want things. I don't want to possess anything. I'm living. That's all. That's enough. Not wanting to possess someone. It's a great freedom to both ourselves and another. Another expression of the near enemy is sentimentality. It is where the soft, fuzzy glow of delusion is present. It's similar to this glow that happens when we meet someone and we fall madly in love. We are totally enchanted with this person. We love everything they do. (laughs) And we, we don't see the person in the totality. We start blotting out that which we don't want to see. And then, as happens at some point, that breaks. And we might find ourselves irritated in the state of aversion. So we'll find um, we might be working with someone in metta practice, and we start to get enchanted by that person, rather than just connecting with that being. You know, um, we might start you know, just riding on how good it was the last time we saw them. Uh, we feel so good when we're around them. And it, it, it really becomes fuzzy. Um, we can also experience it when there's somebody in our metta practice we want to work with because we feel good when we do it. You know, it brings up good feelings and we're riding the energy of that good feeling, which isn't based in the wish for their well-being. It's based in how we feel about the person, what we like about the person. So the far enemy is the opposite. It's anger or aversion. And it's common that this too will arise as we do metta practice. Even though, as Susan said, metta is the antidote to anger or aversion. It can happen that we're working with our dearest friend, someone we really love, and suddenly we're remembering everything that they did that we didn't like. We get caught in uh, strong states of anger, aversion, ill will. Metta has that quality to be inclusive. So as the anger arises, can we let the metta wash over, wash through? I always had the sense in metta practice of it being bigger than whatever experience it meets. We simply see the holding, the pattern of tightness, and let it wash through. The Buddha was uncompromising when he talked about not harboring 
metta, or not harboring anger in our hearts. <laughs> and it takes a strong resolve to really want to work directly with this mind state, to reach the point where we're tired of being pushed and pushed around by this mind state, tired of you know, lashing out in anger, tired of the effect that anger has on our lives. But when we get really tired of it, we can also find that we're willing to work with it, willing to, through vipassana, see into its true nature, and willing to touch anger, touch the fact that it arises with metta. We have no control over its arising because it's arising due to past conditions. But we do have a choice in how we meet it. So we learn to meet it with that softness, with that friendliness, not feeding the flame of anger. It often happens that when we find that there's a lot of anger or aversion towards someone who we've been working with, that we, there's a sense of cutting off, disconnecting, that we no longer see them as a human being. We need to remember that when we send metta to these people, offer wishes for their well-being, that it doesn't mean that we approve of their actions. We're looking to the deepest level of this person. We're looking to our shared humanity to see if we can simply recognize them as a fellow human being. The Dalai Lama says, you can still relate to them because you are still a human being within the human community. You share that bond, and that bond is enough to give rise to worth and dignity. That bond can become a source of consolation in the event that you lose everything else. So when we're working with someone, anger or aversion arises, Can we drop back to this place of shared humanness or shared living beingness? Remembering that when people do unskillful actions, if they've hurt or harmed us, it's quite likely that they too have been hurt or harmed and that they're acting through ignorance. If they were really happy, they would cease to do harmful things. Sometimes we use the lens of compassion to touch into their pain, to feel their pain. And out of that, we see that when someone is in pain, this is where loving kindness is most needed. As we discover anger and aversion in our hearts, we also discover that when we have shut down, when we have thrown somebody out of our hearts, it is we who suffer. And so metta helps us to let go. It's important when we do metta practice to remember it's not a practice of forcing, not a practice of Uh, trying to make something happen. We don't... (coughs) There's the classical unfolding where we begin where it's easiest and gradually expand to where it's most difficult. And there's a lot of wisdom in this. It, It tends to happen that it becomes like blowing on the embers of a fire. And that at some point the metta naturally catches and moves out. It becomes easy to hold someone in our hearts whom it has been very difficult for. So metta is an icon of goodness turning our minds towards something that helps us get in touch with the inherent goodness, 
the natural radiance of the heart. Metta practice is a purification practice where we will face all that obscures the heart, all the places of separation. But we bring these places of separation into the light of awareness. This helps us to develop a friendly relationship with experience. This helps us in the unfolding of wisdom. Metta is a practice of honoring the interconnectedness of all life. In closing, I'd like to read something from Nyanaponika Tara, who was a German-born Theravadan monk who speaks often very eloquently, very beautifully. And this is what he says about love or metta. Love, without desire to possess, knowing well that in the ultimate sense there is no possession and no possessor. This is the highest love. Love, without speaking and thinking of I, knowing well that this so-called I is a mere delusion. Love without selecting and excluding, knowing well that to do so means to create love's own contrast, dislike, aversion, and hatred. Love embracing all beings, small and great, far and near, be it on earth, in the water, or in the air. Love embracing impartially, all sentient beings, and not only those who are useful, pleasing, or amusing to us. Love embracing all beings, be they noble-minded or low-minded, good or evil. The noble and the good are embraced because love is flowing to them spontaneously. The low-minded and evil-minded are included because they are those who are most in need of love. In many of them, the seed of goodness may have died merely because warmth was lacking for its growth, because it perished from cold in a loveless world. Love embracing all beings, knowing well that we all are fellow wayfarers through this round of existence, that we all are overcome by the same law of suffering. Love but not the sensuous fire that burns, scorches, and tortures, that inflicts more wounds than it cures, flaring up now at the next moment being extinguished, leaving behind more coldness and loneliness than was felt before. Rather, love that lies like a soft but firm hand on the alien beings, ever unchanged in its sympathy, without wavering, unconcerned with any response it meets. Love that is comforting coolness to those who burn with the fire of suffering and passion, that is life-giving warmth to those abandoned in the cold desert of loneliness, to those who are shivering in the frosts of a loveless world, to those whose hearts have become as if empty and dry by the repeated calls for help, by deepest despair. Love that is a sublime nobility of heart and intellect which knows, understands, and is ready to help. Love that is strength and gives strength, this is the highest love. Love which by the enlightened one was named the liberation of the heart, the most sublime beauty, this is the highest love. And what is the highest manifestation of love? To show to the world the path leading to the end of suffering, as pointed out and perfected by the Buddha. Let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.